0: Well, good morning, everyone. We uh, started a new series last week that we titled uh, How to Meet the Enemy. We're talking about spiritual warfare, that uh, conflict of the ages uh, between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Uh, I read a a quote this week uh, or a definition this week of spiritual warfare that said it was the the battle between good and evil. Well, um, that's a very general way of stating it. But probably not a good way to understand it, because we're not talking about just uh, disembodied forces. We're talking about personal conflict in the heavenly places between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, and uh, we're learning that we are a part of that. That it it comes down to us as the conflict that that's happening in the heavens gets expressed in different ways on the earth, and uh, we need to understand what is our part in that process. I mentioned last week that I might add a sermon into this series that I, I hadn't uh, expected to do. I, I have added that sermon. It's the one I'm doing today. And our title today is Titles, Targets, and Tactics. And I want to begin with this. In, in C.S. Lewis's famous book, Screwtape Letters, which if you have not read, I would really encourage you to read. If you're a uh, high school middle school age or older uh, you will uh, benefit from that book c.s lewis wrote it in 1941 and and this quote that you're seeing on the screen is is probably become more famous than the book itself he said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils that is demons our, one is to disbelieve in their existence the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, that is the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So uh, you may be sitting here today and going, well, this is all just mythology. This is all just fairy tales. This is all just make-believe um the demons will be pleased with you, or, or, or you may be saying, I'm so excited that we get to talk about demons, the, and, and uh, the demons, they're, they're excited about you too, but he, he, here's what I want us to understand this morning, and I hope that you'll agree with this, that you and I will never become like Christ by studying Satan. Do you believe that? Uh, we, we, we will never become like Christ by obsessing over demons. But study him we must, because if we're going to be successful in this warfare in which we are engaged, then we've got to know, first of all, that we have an enemy, the enemy of our souls. This is not a phony war. This is not pretend conflict. When I was a kid, we used to dress up like soldiers and run through the woods making gun noises from our mouths. It was a pretend war. This is not a pretend war. Secondly, we've got to know our enemy, know his objectives, know his operations, his titles, his targets, his tactics. In the 6th century, a man named Sun Tzu wrote a book titled The Art of War. It's my understanding it's still used today in our military academies because of his brilliance as a tactician. But he wrote this, if you know the enemy... And know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. So we've got to know ourselves, we've got to know our enemy, we've got to know our resources. I want to, and, and I want to interject this before we move on. As we saw last week, and, and will, you, will you say this with me? We are not fighting this battle for victory. We are fighting it from victory. Again, let's say it. We are not fighting this battle for victory. We are fighting it from victory. And what we mean by that is that the decisive action in this warfare, the decisive action that secured our victory took place over 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem. And through the empty tomb at the cross, Christ defeated the power of sin over us by by bearing in our, in his body, all of our sin past, present, and future. And, And before he died, he said, it is finished, paid in full. And so he defeated the power that sin had over us. And then he was raised bodily from the dead and defeating, defeated the very power of death. The decisive action has already taken place. Everything else is reaction. When I was a kid, um, I was um, intrigued by my dad's participation in World War II. And uh, when, when uh, people my age were young, there were a lot of shows on TV about World War II. And some of our heroes were were people that fought in that war. And I asked my dad, Dad, what'd you do in the war? And my dad was a pilot. He was involved in the South Pacific. He was also involved in the skirmish that repelled um, the Germans as they tried, or the Japanese rather, that coming down through Alaska, what many call the Forgotten War and people don't know about. But there was a major major battles in the Aleutian Islands and, um, and so forth, and, and a lot of bloodshed. But then he also was in the South Pacific, and so I asked him, I As said, Dad, what, what really did you do? And he said, well, I was involved in a lot of mop-up operations. And so I'm a little kid, and I'm seeing my dad with a bucket and a mop, right? <laughs> and what I didn't understand what, that he was saying is that, that his unit was sent in after battles to, to finish it off. Take out the last of the enemy and and uh, and that's what we're about in this war we're we're in a mop up operation because the battle was fought and won at the cross and and we're dealing with the aftermath so three things this morning: the titles of the enemy, the targets of the enemy, and the tactics of the enemy let's begin with the titles of the enemy as we Attempt to come to understand who he is in his character, and in his conduct. And I. And by the way, if, take notes, and I'm going to move very fast through this first section. So, so take notes, uh, and just be forewarned. <laughs> in the in your program is a sermon notes form uh, that's available to you. In Isaiah fourteen twelve, Satan's creational name is Lucifer. We saw this last week. Star of the morning the sun of the dawn he was the the anointed uh, the, the guardian anointed cherub he was the highest the most beautiful the most powerful of all of the angelic beings and and a beautiful angel, a beautiful creation, given a beautiful name, star of the morning, son of the dawn. In Luke 4, Revelation 12, and elsewhere in the New Testament, he is the devil, devil, <laughs> diabolos, which means the slanderer, the accuser. In secular Greek, the, the word means backbiter. And, and and it tells us that the devil's goal in our lives is to achieve our condemnation, to accuse us, uh, to sever our fellowship with God. And he's very, very good at that. Don't you know, and you do know, that Satan will sit on your shoulder, not in in a literal sense, but he'll sit on your shoulder and say, "I, I saw what you just did. How can you call yourself a Christian? You think that? About her, how can you call yourself a Christian? You must not be saved. God must not love you. You just went and did that thing? You spoke those words? You thought those thoughts? Something's wrong with your spiritual life. And he's always doing that, isn't he? And the effect that it has is it severs our fellowship with God, because now we are in a fear posture before God instead of a grace posture before God. He is our accuser in zechariah three one revelation twelve nine and elsewhere. He is Satan, the word means adversary adversary it also means accuser it means one who withstands one who opposes he's like a prosecuting attorney in the presence of God slandering us listing charges against us in John's gospel in the book of Revelation he is the deceiver of the whole world and that title pictures the enemy as one who leads people astray by deception causing them to, to merely wander through life without any sense of understanding that would provide a sense of purpose or direction or value to their lives. Revelation 12.10 names him the accuser again of our brothers and sisters who accuses and slanders our names in the presence of God. In his high priestly prayer in John 17 and in First John five eight he is the evil one. Uh, the word there is poneros, one who is inherently pervasively evil, the very embodiment of malevolent wickedness. In Matthew four and five in First Thessalonians three five, he is the tempter, the one who entices us to sin, to, to moral failure, to rebellion against God. In Matthew twelve twenty four and Luke eleven fifteen, Jesus names him the prince or the ruler of demons. And then both Jesus and Paul recognize Satan as the prince of this world, uh, the, the ruler, the first principle of this world, the preeminent ruler of the world order. John says of Satan that, he is the, that the whole world lies in his power, lies in his lap. In Ephesians 2.2, 2, he's identified as the prince of the power of the air. Isn't that an interesting title? The prince of the power of the air. When Satan was cast out of heaven, came down to earth, he was given uh, authority over the whole earth and presumably the atmosphere that surrounds the earth. In that same verse, he is the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. The spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Of disobedience. That word work is energeo. It's the word from which we get our word energy. So he is the, the spiritual power, the operative principle that is continuously at work behind the scenes of peoples and cultures to inspire disobedience, to energize rebellion against God. And we look around our world today and we see a a world that is in rebellion against God, uh, against the people of God, against the word of God, the law of God. Uh, we We see people living lives of apathy towards God, resentment towards God, hostility towards God, open rebellion, shaking their fist at God living lives consistent with that posture, and we say, what's gone wrong? And the answer is, there is a spirit that is at work in the sons of and daughters of disobedience. He is the, the one who is behind it all, uh, behind the scenes. Well, so there's some of his titles. What are his targets? And I want to just point to four, and they're... We, they're We could point to more than that. I don't have time this morning. But here are four major areas that you will see Satan targeting. The first is Jesus Christ himself. The enemy targets Christ. Jesus Christ is Satan's primary target. Why is that? It's because the divine plan and purpose for Jesus coming to the world was that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. It's what he came to do, to break the power that Satan has over you and me. Satan unsuccessfully attempted to destroy, we saw this last week, destroy the messianic bloodline so that Christ could never even be born. And then at at Jesus' birth, Satan enticed King Herod to order that every baby boy two years and younger in the vicinity of Bethlehem be put to death. That was a satanic plot, and it also was unsuccessful. You guys aren't any more awake than the first service. (laughs) Let's just take a coffee break. I'm just kidding. So Satan attempted to conquer Christ in the wilderness through temptation, before the beginning of his public ministry. And, And Jesus resisted him by declaring to him the word of God, and the enemy went away from him, it says, to seek a more opportune time. Satan wasn't finished yet. At the cross, Satan thought that he had finally defeated Christ. But Christ descended, having died, descended into Hades, the Bible tells us, to declare his victory to fallen angels who had been imprisoned in deepest darkness since the days of Noah. And then God raised him from the dead in power and glory. Amen. And having gone into Hades, here's what I think he said You tried, but you lost. Amen. You tried, but you lost. I died, but in a couple of days, guess what's happening to me? I'm being raised. And then I'm going to go and be with my heavenly father. He, he, he spent the next 40 days after the resurrection strengthening his disciples. And then he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God in heavenly places. You see, Satan opposes everything Christ does. Christ reveals the truth. Satan conceals the truth. Christ is the giver of life. Satan came to steal and kill and destroy. Christ produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Satan loves to promote the fruit of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, carousing. Galatians chapter 5. Christ permits tests and trials in our lives to help us grow. Satan perpetrates temptation in our lives in order to seduce and destroy us. Christ makes free those who believe in him, Satan enslaves those who are disbelievers. Christ defends believers. Satan accuses them, slanders and maligns them in the very presence of God. You see, from now until the end of time, this is reality. From now until the end of time, Satan can be counted upon to oppose Christ and the work of Christ. Ever wonder why it's so hard to follow Jesus? Ever feel like you're slogging through three feet of mud trying to follow Jesus? Jesus? It's because Satan is involved in that. When Christ returns, God's word reveals that Satan will fight against him again in the greatest battle of all time, but he will be utterly and finally defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. So the enemy targets Christ, and secondly, he targets the holy angels as opposed to God, as to Satan's unholy angels, if you will, hell's angels. In the 10th chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel, verse 4, Daniel is standing on the bank of the Tigris River in Babylon where he and his people Israel were in exile. And Daniel was greatly discouraged about the circumstances that prevailed for his people. And for a good long time he had been praying and he'd been asking God for insight into the future of his people. Some word of encouragement from heaven. And finally on this particular day an angel of the Lord appeared to him with an answer from heaven. And I want you to just listen carefully to Daniel's description. He said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved. Wouldn't you love to hear that verbally from heaven? You know, oh, Chris, man greatly loved. Oh, Jerry, woman, greatly loved. How cool would that be? Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me for i was left there with the kings of persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days for the vision is for days yet to come you see from the moment daniel prayed his prayer was heard in heaven from the moment he humbled himself before the lord his prayer was heard in heaven you ever wonder where your prayers go you feel like maybe they kind of go up into the tiles in your ceiling and stick there? They don't. They ascend to the very presence of God. He hears your prayers in New York City stands the James A. Farley post office building. It was the um, well, I won't get into that, but its zip code designation is one zero 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 one Post office. Number 1 and on the building are inscribed in these are inscribed these words neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. We might dispute that at times. <laughs> but no mailman has ever had to deal with the adversity and the obstruction that this angel encountered as he fought his way uh, to daniel clashing with the prince of persia seemingly a demonic entity assigned to the persian empire and later in this chapter he says not only was it a tough, tough trip getting here it's going to be no picnic on the return trip either Verses 20 and 21 of Daniel 10. But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. I've got to take on that same angel. And when I go out, and by the way, he refers in the earlier passage to the kings of Persia, which I take to be uh, angelic henchmen. So I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece, presumably another demonic entity, will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed In the book of truth, there is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince, your prince, the one who fights for you. Add to that what we saw last week in Revelation 12 regarding war in heaven. Michael the archangel and the the holy angels fighting against the angels aligned with Satan defeating them and throwing them out of heaven and down to the earth. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. So all around us there is demonic activity all around us, is angelic conflict and and our angels fighting for us, defending us, accomplishing the purposes of God and and Satan comes against them and then the enemy targets the nation of Israel. Have you noticed? Have you noticed? Have you ever just paused to, to wonder why it is At the city of Jerusalem, of all the cities in the world, the city of Jerusalem still seems to be the center of the world from a geopolitical perspective. Everything revolves around Jerusalem. Have you ever wondered why it is that, that the Jews of all the peoples of the world down through history and extending to our own time have been the target of so much racial and ethnic and religious hostility? Throughout history, the powers of darkness have furiously tried to wipe out the nation of Israel. Now, first, it was to prevent Messiah from being born. Today, it's because Israel continues to be significant in God's plan of the ages because of the covenant that God made with Abraham all those centuries ago. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And in your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through that one descendant, Christ, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Romans 11 tells us that at the end of the age, there will be a great turning of the Jews to faith in Jesus Christ. It's already begun. Recall Adolf Hitler's genocidal attempts to annihilate the Jews and to erase them from the earth. Kristallnacht. The death camps, the gas chambers, the firing squads. And what the world might see um, in it is, is mere personal resentment. Garden variety, uh, racial prejudice taken to an unnatural extreme. But what we need to perceive behind it, because it's true, is demonically inspired, demonically motivated attack against God's covenant people. When you see Islamic nations making it their determined purpose, to annihilate the modern state of Israel or or senseless resolutions against Israel coming from world bodies like the United Nations or any number of attempts to delegitimize Israel's existence as a nation, remind yourself that behind it all is a diabolical scheme to thwart God's sovereign purpose. During the coming great tribulation period, the Bible describes a a holocaust of even greater proportion as Satan unleashes his forces against the nation of Israel. But we read there that God will supernaturally protect and defend Israel. Finally, the enemy targets believers, you and I. Uh, We are in his crosshairs at all times, especially, especially, as I mentioned last week, uh, when we purposed in our hearts to take new territory for the kingdom of God. His tactics are revealed by his names. His tactics are revealed in Scripture. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, We are not ignorant of his schemes. In Ephesians 6, 10 to 11, Paul wrote, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He's a schemer. He's a tactician. And he deals, first of all, in deception. Deception. Jesus said of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And I just want to pause right there for a moment and and point out that, that there are many of us who think, well, you know, truth is something you can kind of gather in lots of places. And that and that's there's there's some truth to that and yet be careful. Be careful what you accept as truth. Throughout the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom, is this repeated statement there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. There's a way that seems right to human beings, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right to human reasoning, but its end is the way of death. Be careful where, where you look for truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Deceptive through and through. Satan, Jesus is saying, can't do anything but lie. He speaks out of his own character. Genesis 3 details the the very first deception in the Garden of Eden. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, did God actually say, have you ever heard that little voice? Did God really say that? Because that seems pretty unreasonable to me. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Did God really say that? How extreme is that? How legalistic is that? Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God never said, neither shall you touch it. So so we see Eve already off balance, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, having having injected the, the seed of doubt, now he says, he comes on the full attack and says, you will not surely die. God lied to you. And, and so many of us are saying God's trying to lie to us. God, God's trying to keep us down. And so we're going to pick and choose what we're going to accept from his word for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So you've heard that voice too. God's trying to keep you down. God's kind of trying to kind of be a, a joy killer, a buzz kill. He's, he, he's just a downer because he's really trying to pre- prevent you from becoming all that you can possibly be. And that was... That was the seed that let Satan himself to rebel against God. Now he wants us to buy the same propaganda. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her flunky husband who was with her saying nothing, being a loser, and He ate. He deals in deception. Then how does he do that? Do that? He deceives unbelievers. Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. There's a spiritual blindness that is lifted when we come to faith in Christ. But the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, it's the gospel that changes us and he wants to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel. In Luke 8, 5, we we read that Satan steals the word away. There's a parable that Jesus taught that's referred to commonly as the, the parable of the sower, the guy who's casting seed. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Later on, his disciples said, Would you please explain the parable? And and with regard to this part of the parable, here's what Jesus said. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Seed is the word of God. Got that in your mind? Casting seed, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. What's stolen away? The word. I want to pause right here and and say something to you who are parents of children that are still in your home. Your responsibility as parents before God is to raise up your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's what Paul tells us. That's our responsibility. It actually never ends, does it, for those of you whose children are out of the home? It just it just keeps going. Seems like it'll never end. <laughs> let, let let me just say something very personal and very sincere and, and very serious from my, just from my heart to yours. When you neglect to teach your children God's word, when you neglect to bring them to a place, let's call it Sunday school, (laughs) where they're going to be under the teaching of the pure word of God, you are participating with Satan in snatching the word of God away from your children. You know, we, we don't have very many opportunities with our kids through the church. Let me do a little math with you for a moment. If you brought your kids every Sunday... To Sunday school, and for and, and they actually were under the teaching of God's Word for a period of one hour, which never happens, but let's just hypothetically say that we're true. 52 hours out of the year of formal instruction in the Word of God at their level, 52 hours of instruction a year. Your kids go to school for more hours than that in two weeks. So that when when you choose, because of your hobbies, because of your pleasures, because of, uh, you know, your your trips, your vacations, whatever it is, when you're taking your kids out of the formal teaching of the word of God on a consistent basis, you're snatching the word of God away from them. You are doing exactly what this says. And that sounds harsh, I know, but let's just do the math. Just do the math. If we're going to raise up another generation of kids that are going to make a difference for the kingdom of God, then we need to, and I'm not talking about making their, put their tushies in the seat and just sit there and open their mouths and have it shoved down their throats. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a learning process over Period of years. See, that's the formal learning, but there's informal learning that happens within the body of believers. And so being simply being a part of the church, it rubs off. Paul goes on and he says, Satan also uses deceitful teachers and influencers. Now the Spirit, 1 Timothy 4 1, expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. When we we hear those phrases, deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, we may think of a very extreme situation, but that's not what Satan does because Satan is a seducer. He'll take a little bit of truth and he'll add it together with a little bit of falsehood and lead you right down a primrose path to destruction. And, and Paul says here that, that in the latter times, which I believe we're in, people will depart from the Christian faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Be careful, be careful who you listen to. In Jude 3 and 4, Jude, the brother of Jesus, writes of people who have infiltrated the church to confuse believers by perverting the gospel. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered To the saints, the the faith of the gospel, the purity of the gospel, the purity of God's word for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I was tempted this morning to, to bring you a list of people that I believe do that. I decided otherwise, but there are many and they have huge audiences. 2 Corinthians 1113 to 15, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Be careful. Satan deals in deception. He also deals in discouragement. And I've talked with many of you who deal with this on a regular basis. Uh, Satan wants to keep you preoccupied with anxiety. He wants to keep you preoccupied with distress. In First Peter 5, Peter writes, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. Some of you think that, that he doesn't care. Some of you think that God doesn't like you very much. Listen to me. God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Get it in your mind. Get it in your heart. He loves you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Isn't it interesting that right on the heels of saying, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, Peter says, you've got an enemy. Satan deals in depression. He deals in anxiety. He deals in discouragement. He wants to keep you down because you have identified yourself with Jesus Christ. You've trusted in him. You're dangerous to him. He wants to keep you discouraged. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Several years ago, there was a little slogan flying around. You see it on mugs. You see it on T-shirts. And it said, life's a dirty word and then you die. Life's hard and then you die. It's a biblical thought. Life is hard. And it will be until you die. There it is. There it is. And some of us get discouraged, some of us get depressed because we have expectations that belong to a different time and a different place. And we live in a broken world. We live in a deceived world. We live in a confused world. We live in a world in rebellion. A poet years ago referred to it as a veil of tears. Brokenness, sorrow, sadness, addictions, we live in a screwed up place. So we've got to adjust our expectations because life's going to be hard and then you're going to die. But when you die, everything changes. When you pass into his presence, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Any of you need a little restoration this morning? Need a little confirmation? Need a little strengthening? A little establishment? Wait for it. Wait for it. It's coming. Satan uses anxiety to choke out the growth of God's word in your life. Back to that same parable that Jesus taught, the parable of the sower. It says, The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. The seed is the word of God. Still the word of God. That hasn't changed. Seed is the word of God. And as for what fell among the thorns... They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. How many of you would say that your life got better when you got more stuff? Bigger house, more expensive car, more things that break on it, a boat, hole in the water you pour money into. choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. He uses anxiety to choke out the word, the growth of God's word in our lives. And then finally, Satan deals in disunity. Satan deals in disunity. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, he said, make every effort to preserve the unity the spirit has already created. Ephesians is all about unity. It's all about what God did in Christ to destroy the dividing wall of hostility between us and and God and between Jews and Gentiles. And he says, look, make every effort, be diligent, work hard to preserve in your personal experience the unity that God created for you in the spiritual realm with peace binding you together. I want to ask everyone in this church to say, I will commit myself to preserve the unity that the Spirit has created and is trying to keep on creating in this body of believers. And one of the most misunderstood and neglected foundations of unity is submission to leadership in the church. And right now, some of you are going, okay, here we go. <laughs> it's going to get all oppressive, all authoritarian. Not what I'm talking about. When we look at Paul's statement, as we saw it last week, that our our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but our, our struggle is against principalities, against powers, against the the world forces of darkness against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. We see a very regimented, disciplined enemy. And when we look at the church, what do we see? We see a very unregimented, disarrayed, sloppy group of people. Excuse me. Obey your leaders, the writer of Hebrews says, and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I was up in Bellingham a few months ago for my aunt's funeral. And while I was there, I ran into a man that... um, had been a part of the church that I grew up in. He's my parents' age. Uh, he was, in all the years of my growing up, the most critical man in the church. Um, he, he just had a penchant for, for criticism. And as uh, I, I was happy to see them, because uh, I had known them all my life, and, but as we talked not two minutes into the conversation, he was off on criticizing someone as we were reminiscing about old times. And the name of a man came up that I remember very fondly, and he said of this man who has been dead for decades. He was an old man when I was young. But he said of him, you know you, you, you know about him, don't you? Well, he was a skinflint. He was the most miserly guy I ever knew and i thought in my heart <laughs> you haven't changed yourself in all these years you're still that same critical guy and he and one other guy in our church made life miserable for all of our pastors and whenever i read hebrews 13:17 i think of those two men made life miserable for their pastors was sharing recently with one of our elders and then and a, a, a person came up who in our church who neither of us have ever heard say a positive word about life point lots of critical words so never a positive word and i ask why is that person here why not find another church where it works better for them make another pastor miserable See, the greatest key to to unity is that we choose forgiveness. We will always hurt each other. One of the things I said to Doug and Deb Boyce when they came to LifePoint is I said, I'm not a perfect pastor and I will fail you, I may hurt you. I know that. And we all hurt each other in various ways. Paul writes, be angry and do not sin. See, he doesn't say sin is anger is sin. He said, be angry. Anger happens. Like the sun rises. (laughs) Anger happens. He said, Be angry, and in your anger do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Get listen now what he says. Give no opportunity to who? The devil when you choose to harbor grievances, when you choose to soak in your resentment and your bitterness, good luck with that. But don't bring it into the church, please. When you are wounded by someone in the church, forgive them, pursue reconciliation with them, confront the issue if you need to, But give no opportunity to the devil. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When we fail to forgive, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. A lot of times what I think we do is we stand off and we say, well, God's probably on our side about this. And Paul says, no, you know, dump that thought. You're grieving the Holy Spirit of God who sealed you for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let me take that and put it into a military context. If you have a military unit that's trying to achieve a military objective and they're fighting with each other, what have they accomplished? Nothing. They set themselves up for defeat. Paul isn't just saying, hey, be nice. He's saying, understand that you have an enemy, and, and when you are unforgiving, and when, when you refuse to be reconciled to people, when you, when you refuse to let go of your grievances, you are playing into the hands of the enemy, and it's going to have an effect on the whole church. So he deals in deception, he deals in discouragement, he deals in disunity. He deals in a lot of other stuff too, we don't have time. But let's be aware. Let's understand our enemy and what he's about and how he works because he is a powerful and subtle enemy. Good news is, say it with me, we are not fighting this battle for victory, but we are fighting it from victory amen? amen first john 3 8 the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the works of the devil you read at the end of the book he loses <laughs> first john 4 4 he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world Well, next week, uh, Fight the Good Fight. We're going to talk about five biblical principles for success in the battle. Hope you'll be here for that. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that at the cross, uh, he defeated the powers of the enemy forever, broke his power, broke his back. But Lord, we know that we have uh, an angry enemy who would like nothing more than to take us out of the battle take us prisoner, uh, injure us, defeat us, destroy us. So Lord, help us to be shrewd, help us to be wise, help us to be listening for the voice of your spirit, help us to take these things that we've talked about this morning to heart and to apply them in our lives. Lord, thank you that our sins are forgiven, that the enemy cannot ultimately touch us, that he can't. Uh, take us out of your hand because you are holding tight to us. And and so we, we, we give you praise and we give you thanks for that. And we look forward, Lord Jesus, to the day of your return. Amen.